Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. We're back today on the Heart of Leaders podcast with Rick Sirfoss, shuttle commander, test pilot, and extraordinary heart-led leader. I'm Rick Barrera, your host, and we're going to get right into it with Rick learning about how he led the most successful shuttle mission in NASA history. Rick, you hold the distinction of leading the most successful shuttle mission in NASA history. Tell us how that came to pass. Okay, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, however, I, I must put a caveat on because out of 135 space shuttle missions, there were tremendous successes across the board in a wide variety of fields. So maybe it might be better to say one of the most successful shuttle missions, but certainly the mission I commanded was uh, the most complex science research mission that had ever been flown. As the last space lab flight, uh, we had reached a level of our ability to do incredible world-class science in this very difficult operational um, environment in, out in space that really catapulted that, uh, catapulted that mission to a, a unique place, and it was a real joy for me to have an instrumental part in that. Um, so I would have to say that for my own pre- preparation, I had been mentored with some great leaders uh, through the years, not only in my military career, but my first two space shuttle commanders who happened to also both be uh, Air Force officers and both graduates of the Air Force Academy like me. Um, So I I think there's a correlation there, but uh, they were nevertheless both fantastic leaders and modeled exactly this heart-led leadership of how you um, constantly are building others up, even in the midst of very, very intense pressure and uh, high workloads and, um, you know, a lot on the line. Uh, and it was with those examples uh, that I picked up uh, some, some great concepts that I really tried to apply. Uh, perhaps one instrumental, to just pick one of many, is the concept of what I call the matrix. Just every relationship that is uh, within the team, you as a leader have to be fo- focusing on and, and strengthening the um, the one-on-one relationships between other members of your team, your relationship as the leader with team members, uh, the nested relationships, if you will, or the matrix to the nth power of all the interactions your subgroup or your small team may have with others across the enterprise. Uh, NASA, of course, is a very matrixed organization, to use that term in a slightly different context. Uh, but the con- concept of uh, building and strengthening across the board was hugely important for a mission that involved um, overall thousands of people, but most directly that the crew worked with uh, uh, hundreds of people within dozens of teams. Uh, so that's the biggest picture concept that I found useful for me. And I know it's far, far more of that than I ever imagined when I first came into the astronaut corps and I was looking at what the job of being a space shuttle commander would be about, you know, when I was a new rookie astronaut and that was still ahead of me a ways. 
Um, and it was the most gratifying part of it as well. I, I love the technical side. I'm a technical guy. I loved having the chance to land the space shuttle. That's a pretty good feather in your cap if you're a test pilot and to be given that privilege. Uh, but at the end of the day, the most important part and the part that really led to the mission success were all of the human interactions doing something that was bigger than any one of us. So so you you said that you learned from your mentors how to build people up. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think it's in some ways it's very, very simple, but it's, it's always keeping uh, forefront in your mind that regardless of the pressures or the deadlines or the things you have, weighing on you. And in our case, you know, they're very real sense. There are things that if we didn't get right, we would die, you know, so that is a little bit of pressure, right? But at the same time, you know, backing off, putting your fun meter on things to, to use that phrase and realizing if you're not having fun, what you're doing, you're doing something wrong. And, and if you, if everyone's just kind of not having that energetic fun as a leader, you need to step back and say, okay, what am I doing wrong? Where am I not strengthening and building the bonds that will really count when we need them, when we need to trust our lives to one another and, and be ready for those kind of contingencies that come up. Uh, so it's constant attention, and it's often just little things, you know, just uh, uh, paying attention to people, uh, the, you know, the, the kind word to, to someone who may be the newest new hire in the organization, just recognizing them, uh, attributing value to what they uh, give to the organization, um, even Again, to go back to something simple, um, the first thing I did, the first official action you might say is commander, when I got the crew assigned and we all we had our first crew meeting and we sit down and I had five rookies out of seven of us. I said, hey, the first thing we need to do is plan a crew party. And they go, what? And I said, well, <laughs> I said, you know, we'll get to the business soon enough. Don't worry about that. But how about this weekend? You know, I haven't met uh, some of your significant others or spouses and, and likewise. We need to start to get to know each other better, but also those who we care most about, who support us. Uh, let's all get together, you know, and children. We had several other crew members who had families and children, and that was hugely important right off the bat. Sort of, you know, sets the tone. I'm very much a believer in the concept that the commander sets the tone, and and with that positive tone and, and that kind of outreach, then other people pick up on that, and, uh, and then the culture evolves within the organization that way. Cool. So you did something that to me was very counterintuitive for a guy who grew up in the military and the structure and the orders and the systems and the processes. When you got into your, whatever it was, T-38 and flew down to see the science folks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to you want to hear that story? Oh, well, I do, but I but I it, it does. It seems to me so counterintuitive. Like like that wasn't normal for a NASA mission, was it? No. So we should probably give the listeners a little bit more of the comp, uh, context. So I'll give a little bit more of that. But I would say by that point, in my experience it was intuitive. It might not have been intuitive uh, early on, or certainly you know growing up military background from the time at the Air Force Academy as a lieutenant and squadrons, you know, you have that discipline that's always over you. But it's a different sort of leadership model or context within NASA. It's a civilian organization. Uh, although I was still an active duty military officer, I needed to take more soft leadership approaches. And this was one of those that I did that I ended up paying 
great benefits for the team. So I, um, the way NASA did the assignments for space shuttle flights, they kept a very close hold and secret with senior management and the chief astronaut until they were ready to announce it publicly. So I did. Uh, I had a pretty good inkling. I did have a few clues from the from the chief of the office that I was going to command this particular mission, but nothing official. But I had no clue who was going to be on the flight other than two payload specialists who had been sort of pre-selected. Uh, they were outside, not career astronauts, but for, chosen for their specific science expertise to be on the flight. Uh, but the day they announced it all, you know, f- find all the crew, we, we get together for that first day. But I, as we got together, I learned from one of the scientist astronauts that, hey, there's a big meeting going on this week up in D.C. of all the principal investigators on this mission. And they come from literally around the world. I mean, this is a big deal science-wise. I thought, oh, this is perfect timing. Uh, so I called up uh, aircraft operations and said, book me a T-38 for tomorrow. I absolutely must have it. This is a super high priority. I've got to get up to Dulles because um, NASA headquarters, D.C., would fly our little T-38s into Dulles, mix it up with the big airliners and our little uh, T-38 white rockets, you know. And uh, And so I did that, and my intent was to stand in front of all these scientists and commit myself as the commander um, on behalf of the crew and, and all of us, that we would do everything in our power. We would bend over backwards, that their mission success was our mission success. It was not just about flying a rocket or me landing a space shuttle or doing the astronaut thing. It was about the success of the science, which they had, in many cases, worked on years and years, approaching a decade to get ready. Uh, and I just felt it was an important message that needed to be sent because, you see, I, that is not my career field. I I took high school biology and one physiology class in college, and, and I loved them. You know, I, even for a while in high school, I thought maybe I'll become a doctor, you know, but I went back to my, my core thing that energized me, the uh, fluid physics and airplanes and that. But but anyway, I, I was not one of them. Uh, well, and uh, you were, were you invited to that meeting? Well, I got invited. I mean, I got invited. I, I you called asked up to be invited. and coordinated okay. and said, hey, I need, during one of your general sessions, just give me like 10 minutes is all I need. I just want to meet the scientists. I want to have, you know, say a few things to them. So and the idea was to stand before them and make that commitment, even though I, there was no requirement for me to ever do that. You know, I, as the commander myself and what they called, what NASA termed the, the, uh, orbiter crew, the pilot commander and the mission specialist who took care of systems on the orbiter, uh, we had a somewhat different set of responsibilities. But I very much believed in the concept of, you know, there's no orbiter crew separate from the payload crew. We're all one crew. We're all invested in the success of this mission. It's just that we serve different roles. We have different roles and do different specific technical tasks, but we're we all care about the success of this mission. So I publicly committed to that, thinking that, that that's just the right thing to do, to begin to build relationships, give them the warm, fuzzy feeling, so to speak, that you know, if anything ever came up and there were any doubt, that I would weigh in to the best of my abilities uh, in, in the success of the science. Uh, that's important because there's an awful lot of constraints and there's safety considerations, and, and building that credibility was important for me because if a time ever did come up where I kind of said, we really, man, that's, the hairs are standing up on the back of my neck if we try to do X, Y, or Z in that environment, that time frame, that they would 
trust that credibility. It's part of building the trust. You know, I would have the credibility with them. Um, and it paid great dividends. Even I didn't have much interaction with those scientists during the course of the training and so forth. My payload guys did. They were constantly traveling around the country training and updating experiments and, you know, getting up ready to go fly. But uh, they were constantly coming back, says, oh, Dr. So-and-so at University of Arizona says hi. And, you know, okay, what's going on with his experiment? How's the progress going? And, and he says, and I even had one of them say, you know, they, they're still talking about uh, how you, you came up there and as the jet, you know, rocket guy, <laughs> the uh, pilot guy, commander, you committed to the, their stuff was important to you. I thought, well, how hard is it to do? I mean, after all, there's spending all this taxpayer dollars, not just so I can go ride a rocket. They want something productive out of it. They want this research done. And by golly, if I'm going to risk my life, I want it done too. So that's kind of where I came from on that. So, so at some point, they did come to you, and you you threw yourself and your crew under the bus, or under the shuttle, as the case may be on the experiments, on the human experiments, right? What was that? I'm not quite sure what you're referring to, although uh, are you referring to the real invasive experiment I had done yes. on myself? Well, yeah, you, okay, but yeah. you also, your crew, okay. and you volunteer your well, crew Well, the to crew, be... so, no, let's, let's step back. The okay. crew very willingly volunteered the docs and stuff <laughs> to do some pretty invasive stuff for the sake of science. I'm at science. We did vials of blood literally plugged into the vagus nerve with the, with the wire into, you know, at some level of pain. Uh, for something called micronography, all necessary for the science, and they're very willing to do it. However, for the pilot and commander, there's some things from a safety perspective we just couldn't do on orbit. I could not be in that experimental get-up if we'd have had an emergency on the shuttle happen, uh, just to get out of it and then to go respond to the emergency, the time delay. So that would be one of those cases like, hey, I'd love to help you, but I can't. So I thought on that one, okay, here's another leadership example I can set. Um, because it was pretty fascinating experiment, and, and I talked to our, all our docs were doing it on each other. And I said, you know, would it help the scientists if uh, we had some pre-flight and post-flight data on this one? I'll volunteer for it. Uh, I can't do it on orbit for safety reasons, and there's good operational reasons, but uh, I'll do it on the ground. And, you know, I did ask him, I said, how much does it really hurt? <laughs> go, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's okay, you know. And so I volunteered to do it. And again, from a leadership perspective, it's uh, set an example. It's kind of a no-brainer, and it gave them more results uh, than they expected. It was not required at all, and it really didn't take that much more time or effort on my part. Just a few data takes uh, beforehand, uh, and then a, a one on landing day, you know, after after I had safely landed the shuttle, and uh, then, then one or two later, uh, but. Yeah, it's just something you do if you want success for the whole enterprise. And, and honestly, I would say that's kind of the culture I've grown up in in, in the military. Uh, sure, there are exceptions to that in the military, but by and large, I'd say uh, military organizations, at least all I've been involved with, are quite selfless and people are, are in it for the team. Um, that sometimes I've seen very different things in, this, in the civilian world, in the business world, yep. uh, but but... By, well, almost without, ex well, definitely without exceptions, the organizations that really have it together, that really are on a great trajectory and path, uh, even though they're in the civilian world, which is, you know, you know, the business world's cutthroat and dog-eat-dog -dog and all that, nevertheless, the best organizations in that environment still have people that 
watch each other's back and uh, take care of one another. Well, that's great. It's the way it's supposed to be, right? It just doesn't always yeah. work that way in, in the corporate in the ideal side. world. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you're a part of an organization like that, I mean, it's worth its weight in gold, you know, to be in that setting and environment. You know, some things go beyond money, in, in my view. You know. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So, what does it feel like to have a billion pounds of thrust under your backside? I'm sure I'm exaggerating, <laughs> well, but. That's I'm quite sure. an exaggeration, not quite a billion. But <laughs> the, the whole space shuttle stack, when it was on the pad, weighed roughly 6 million, had just shy of 7 million pounds of thrust total. So uh, enough to get it get it going. And, of course, as you burn down weight, it goes faster and faster and faster. And I tell you what, it gets your attention. When the solid rocket booster is light, <laughs> uh, those guys with the solid repellent didn't burn perfectly smoothly. So there was a lot of shaking back and forth as well as the propulsive force force going forward. Um, I'm very, very glad that I was a pilot astronaut and then a commander because I was busy, busy, busy the whole time uh, monitoring systems, you know, the main engines, uh, hydraulics, the electrics, everything. Um, and it varies crew position, obviously. The commander has different technical responsibilities from the pilot on the ascent. Um, but uh, so you're not spending a lot of time just thinking on what this feels like and I hope it all holds together. You're just focused on doing your job. Um, but it's a great feeling. It's a really fun ride, you know. If you, as long as you kind of keep the little subroutine under control that's running in the back of your mind, like, you know, you could die while you're doing this. <laughs> it's, it's, you, you ignore that, and it's a blast. It's great fun. Like, although we tend not to use the term blast or blast off, you know, because right. of what it might connote. <laughs> so, what was your favorite moment in space? Uh, yes, all of the above. Um, I loved being in space. Um, my first shuttle commander, John Blaha, had a reputation as being a, a real space animal. Uh, and not everyone in the astronaut corps, uh, you know, actually loved being up there. And some folks sort of would feel the queasiness and, and the full head and, you know, and that, I guess, could put a damper on it. But I never had any of that. And I got up there, and, and I was also sort of culturally prepared by Commander John Blaha, who said, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. I mean, it, I can't even describe to you how great it is. And we got up there, and he was so totally right. Just just moving around, the sense of, of freedom and the, uh, the uh, almost spiritual experience of looking out the uh, window at the planet, uh, it's just incredibly beautiful and so uh, almost surreal or sublime for certain. Uh, so that was great. And then, you know, from time to time, you think like, wow, I'm part of something really much bigger than me, and just this is just really cool that humans can do this, you know? And then the idea that we had a mission that mattered, that's another concept I think is very important, is striving to make your enterprise a mission that really matters as far as giving service to others. That made it very gratifying as well. And all of those things rolled together um, made the experience on all three space flights just absolutely wonderful. So what did you learn about humanity? Well, I, you know, I freely admit that I worked with some very talented and very, very good people. I mean, I was very blessed with all my crewmates and support people we had in NASA. And I, and I recognize that, you know, I've, based on sometimes other work experiences and inter interactions and uh, with people, I don't have rose-colored glasses on, 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 this, on the side of humanity where, you know, people aren't necessarily the highest integrity and so forth. But I would have to caveat that the the most positive aspects of humanity were 
laid before me multiple times during my time in NASA and in particular on, on the missions. People who were devoted to something that was bigger than themselves that really uh, felt that uh, it was crucial and important and uh, and gratifying from that point of view. Um, one story I think is kind of interesting. It ties into the whole breadth of humanity and the big picture kind of moment. Um, I was flying over so we're at 160 miles up or so, and it was after dinner, so we had a few minutes to before we get ready to go to bed to just chill out and look out the window. And I'm floating in the aft flight deck just after we had passed over the eastern side of China. So the shuttle, it traverses west to east, so we kind of had most of China laid out in front of us. We could see where Beijing was. We could see the Yellow Sea. We could look up to the north and see Korea, look down to the south, see Taiwan, and then all along the eastern shore of China. And I said to Dave Williams, a Canadian astronaut on the mission with me, um, I said, Dave, do you realize we're looking at about a billion people right now, just all in our view? He goes, yeah. He says, I feel, even though we're so separate from them right now, I feel really connected. And we began to talk about this concept of being on this spaceship Earth. You know, we're all hurtling through the cosmos together. We're all trying to you know, figure out what life's about, uh, all with our different cultures overlaid and different value systems and, you know, seven billion of us. But one thing we have in common, we're all on this, you know, one little spaceship Earth, and we really are, in in a real sense, one big family. And you get more of a sense of that when you're up and away and you can see so much at once. It just, it affects you emotionally that way. Maybe we should make uh, space travel mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if we could, that would be wonderful. I mean, it definitely, uh, I mean, it, it was life-changing experience for me. I mean, I would love to say I came back and I, I never lost patience with my kids anymore or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't that life-changing, I guess. <laughs> but still, it gives you a different way of uh, looking at things for sure. All right. So I have to, yeah. I have to talk about uh, your humble side here. You... You at one point flunked space camp, or <laughs> yeah. or at least an exercise in space camp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, would you mind sharing yeah, that story with our you. listeners? Well, it wasn't really space camp, as in the space camp in Alabama, <laughs> which does run some great programs, even adult programs, where they they do some simulations and so forth to put people together as a team. And of course, when the kids do it, they do all that. But in the real mission training, um, it progresses to the point near the end of your training where the entire flight crews together in the in the shuttle uh, simulator, which has, uh, I mean, it's, it's a pretty sophisticated uh, device that has all of the interactions between the different systems and the computers and everything, uh, and it's very functional, so it models everything just like it would be um, on orbit or on ascent or reentry. And then towards the end, you're not only have the crew and your training team, but you're linked in to the mission control center, and there are literally hundreds of people all involved in in these big, almost graduation level exercises you're doing before you're really ready to go to space. And one of these such events, which was it was a long one by you know four to six hours total because there was so much going on, uh, it was it got to one point with the uh, commander's side who was in charge of the the computers and the data processing system to be pretty intense because they basically caused malfunctions that took everything down and you had to bring it up from scratch and and load in a new navigation base just by manually sighting on stars and just all kinds of stuff, you know. And I had always, I'm, I'm more a mechanical engineering kind of guy versus an electrical engineering kind of guy. The mechanical systems I always got 
in a heartbeat, and, and I love that stuff anyway. Data processing system, IT, yeah, not so much. I, you know, and I had been getting by the Sims just fine up to then. My my knowledge level was was adequate, but it wasn't totally where it needed to be. Because uh, we went through this sim, and I just found you know a few rough spots here and there, and it's just uh, I'm slowing things down a bit, and this is not going as well as it should. But yet the culture is such that you know we we do our debriefs, and every you know they were kind of treading kind of lightly, not hammering the commander the way he needed to be hammered. Honestly, the commander being <laughs> you. The commander being me. <laughs> okay. And I'm just thinking, you know, this wasn't up to my standards, and. You know, it was, so we went through all the debrief, and and you know they they sort of tiptoed around what I think really needed to be said, and I finally gutted it out to myself and said, okay, it's time to put the hammer out and hammer yourself on the head because we got it. We need to do this uh, again to really be at the level I want us to be. So I so I said I said you know all those those are great comments I learned from them, but but frankly my performance was subpar. Uh, the rough spots that came, you know, in the whole evolution were my fault and my fault alone. And I think we need to reschedule the event. I mean, I, I hate to do this because of the time and everything, but I think we need to do that. In the meantime, if you schedule me for some review stuff with with my training DPS guy, you know, and go through it, I'll really bone up on this and uh, be totally up to speed, and, and I think it'll go a lot smoother. And so everyone kind of like, wow, <laughs> the commander's, stripped the rank off figuratively and uh, was able to hammer himself for the good of the team. But I, you know, that was, had been modeled to me so many times in my military career uh, and in things I had done in the past and with other leaders, how could I not follow their example? And so I went and did that, went and, you know, focused on that for the next uh, week, got a little extra instruction and tuning things up and we went back and it went great the next time. But again, it set the tone and it set, you know, set this idea that, okay, I'm not going to let my pride stand in the way of mission accomplishment. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of hard to do. So it was a bit humbling. Yep. We had jokes about it afterwards that, yeah, hey, give give Rick something mechanical, he'll be all over it. He'll have it taken <laughs> apart and put back together in a second. But you start running electrons through it and it's not quite so interesting to him. But, you know, I, I needed to get to a higher level, and I was able to do that with the help of our great training team. And you said there were hundreds of people involved in that. So what was the total cost of redoing that little exercise? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, trivial, really, in terms of uh, the total cost of the mission and where we needed to be in terms of our readiness, right? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it, it couldn't have been cheap if you do full cost accounting on people's salaries and everything else, but uh, yeah. it was a necessary item. Yeah, but I'm... Um, um certain that your crew appreciated you getting up to speed before they left yeah it was all good well and then the one of the points i make in my uh, speeches uh, almost every speech i talk about the in, in order for an organization to be a trust-based organization a first order requirement you got to have the zeroth order requirement satisfied of individuals being trustworthy and i, I show a little video clip of us uh, flying uh, as we're landing at the Cape in our T-38s just a few days before launch, and then there's a little session where we're kind of standing up talking to the press or whatever. And I point out to the audience, like, at this point, we're looking at one another and go, yeah, I can trust my life to him and her, and yeah, let's go do this. That's the greatest feeling in the world, to be able to have that level of trust. But it takes work, and you know, you got to just constantly be driving towards it. 
So you wrote a book about your adventures. Why was it so important for you to write that book? Yeah, well, it's it's not just about the adventures. In fact, uh, there have been a number of books written through the years by astronauts, and uh, some of the you know the famous early ones, of course, that you know by name. Their memoirs just fascinating. They're so tied into us getting to the moon and so forth. Uh, but even some of my colleagues in the shuttle era have written uh, more memoir-type books, and uh, I've read a number of them, and they're all quite entertaining. And I know the background of the stories they're telling, you know, because I was in the office at the same time and so forth. I wanted to take a different approach because no astronaut had ever written a book about the the teamwork and the leadership side of uh, what we do to make our mission successful. And I, I just have always thought we had great benchmarks and lessons for the business world. That's why I hung my shingle out and went out speaking to business audiences about it. So the book was to complement the speaking, and also I felt like it was a mission to share my message in a more detailed sort of way. I, I discovered in the, that two-year process of, you know, getting up at oh dark 30, and I am a morning person, but I needed to write before the too many distractions from emails and calls and so forth. Uh, I discovered that as I pulled all these stories out, that anyone who's really a serious student of leadership and teamwork can take a much, much deeper dive with my book than they can with, uh, with hearing me speak. And it was just, and it helped make my speeches better. It tightened up my message. It was just a wonderful thing all around. I don't think I'll ever write another book, honestly. I got so many other essays, and I know you've, I know you've written many, and more power to you, and that's great. Uh, and I, but I put an awful lot of work into it. I did not have a ghostwriter. I, I had some great editors, of course, but I said this is going to be my effort. This is just something on my bucket list. I, I have to do. There's a compelling need for me to get this out, and hopefully, it'll be helpful to you know whatever audience it reaches. Well, they're, my experience with them is they're like having children, you know, the, not that I have given birth myself, but, you know, but after a couple of years, apparently you forget the pain and then you do it again. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so you might yeah. have another book in you. Well, we'll see. I think if I do it, maybe more a kid's book or something, find a good illustrator. And there you go. There is actually one, um, one of my colleagues, one of the Kelly brothers, many you know, there's a couple of famous shuttle astronauts there because they're identical twins, Mark and Scott Kelly, and Scott just was the one that spent the year in space. But his brother Mark put out a book uh, called Mousetronaut, and it was based <laughs> on they, they had a, some mice that flew on one of the missions, and just observing, one seemed to be more in tune with being in space than the others, so he kind of took that concept and ran with it and wrote a great children's book that I read to my grandsons. I go, yeah, I know him. And this is a great story about Mousetronaut, you know? So, so I'm thinking maybe a kid's book, uh, would be kind of fun to put together. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. So how would you define heart-led leadership? Yeah. Heart-led leadership, I think is, uh, at, at the core, it is, um, it is not just about people, which you kind of go, well, are you sure? You know, this is a people-oriented thing. Well, it's about people coming together to get a mission accomplished. And that's what really closes the loop and makes it ultimately the most satisfying. I mean, as much, I like sitting around a campfire, linking arms and singing kumbaya as much as the next guy. But I don't want a professional life that's just that. Uh, so heart-led leadership is about uh, the individual who is able to... Uh, weigh what sometimes seems competing priorities to take care of their people and also get the mission accomplished, get the job done. Um, and those who really get it 
understand that the principles tie together. The more effective you can be in building up, strengthening, training, preparing your people, the more effective they'll be in getting the job done and taking care of the issues and the problems and overcoming the hurdles and challenges. Uh, so to winnow that down into a, a short definition, I'd say heart-led leadership is leadership that focuses at the right levels on each of what I call the four P's, purpose, people, perspective, and program. Uh, so keep the big picture in mind with, with your people. You treat them right to execute on the program. Program's the execution piece to actually get something done while keeping your ultimate purpose in mind. You keep all those things balanced, and you will be uh, an effective heart-led leader. Awesome. So just give us a minute or two on the commercialization of space, because I know you've been working in that for the last decade or so. What, what, what do the rest of us not know about what's coming? Yeah, so, so I've been tagged up for it in several years with a variety of, of different projects. I was probably one of the first um, government-based astronauts to get involved in any of these projects. Uh, the last 15 years, really, it's really all kinds of things in my technical field in the aerospace have come along from much smaller, more nimble c companies trying to do entrepreneurial, in some cases, at first blush, kind of crazy things. But it's just a great paradigm shift, and it's leading to uh, much creativity and innovation um, within the field. Uh, my involvement can, and people are much more in tune with it now than when I first started get, getting involved a number of years ago. Largely, I would say, in, because of uh, Elon Musk and, and uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, who with Blue Origin and SpaceX have done some incredible things, and they're also both pretty much larger than life kind of characters, right? Yep. And uh, and it's really it's been fascinating to watch the success of both those enterprises. Um, my involvement probably traces back uh, first to uh, uh, the the X Prize, which in two, it was won in 2004, but the concept had been around a few years before. And uh, the idea was to award a $10 million prize to the first uh, company or organization that uh, flew a rocket ship to the edge of space, at least 100 kilometers high, that was capable of carrying three people and had to have at least one test pilot or person on board uh, when it flew, but ballast for the other two spots would be sufficient, uh, to 100 kilometers high and do it again within two weeks with no government money. So the idea was to kickstart entrepreneurial uh, private sector stuff. And it was modeled after the Ortigue Prize, which was the prize that Charles Lindbergh won to cross the Atlantic, uh, first solo flight across the Atlantic. And it was that idea of the motivating, inspiring power of prizes. And sure enough, I, I was invited in by Dr. Peter Diamandis, the founder of the X Prize. And um, we've been uh, friends for a number of years. And prior to that, I'd worked on it with him on some other projects. I just love his vision and his energy, and he's uh, and magnificently intelligent. And just uh, was great to come up with this idea as the first one and then bring it through to fruition. So he invited me in to be the fly on the wall, put a technical team together to observe that, yay, verily, they accomplished all the uh, all the tasks laid before them. Like, how do you actually measure someone gets to 100 kilometers <laughs> high, you know? And, yeah. and we had various onboard, integrated, uh, embedded GPS, INS to do that. And also, because it all took, as it ended up, took place out here in the California desert, near Edwards Air Force Base and China Lake Naval Weapon Center, which all had radar systems. And those guys were like, hey, we'll be glad to look at this and provide corroborating data and, you know, no 
no cost because it, it lets us exercise our systems. It's a benefit to us. And so we, you know, that was part of the innovation too on the judging side, just getting all this together to figure it out. Anyway, it was a great project, great way to for me to meet many people, kind of come into their orbit, so to speak, and uh, then be involved in other projects since. So was that Dick Rattan that won that? Well, Dick Rattan's company, Scale Composites, um, Yes, it was their company. Uh, Dick, by this point, uh, I mean, he he was very much involved with this project, but uh, he was starting to phase into retirement. He retired a little bit after that. He But he was instrumental in the design of Spaceship One, but then, uh, which won the prize, Spaceship Two, <laughs> uh, the only thing they don't have innovation on, perhaps you might say, is the naming of their spaceship. They just call it Spaceship <laughs> One, Two, you know, whatever. But they... they uh, they sold the right commercialization rights to Richard Branson. That's where, you know, Virgin Galactic oh, okay. and all that got started. Right. So it's an outgrowth of that. Uh, but yeah, I got to uh, spend some time uh, with Dick in various meetings as we talked about, okay, the judging criteria and how do we do this? And, you know, this discussions beforehand to make sure that everything was really, all the T's were crossed and the I's dotted. And we had, you know, I was very much emotionally pulling for the success of the project. At the same time, it had to be uh, independent. And we had a representative on the uh, judging committee from the uh, insurance company that was involved. So the way they funded this $10 million prize was they took out a hole-in-one insurance policy. If you're familiar, you familiar with those? Yep. So, yeah. So for the listeners, a hole-in-one insurance policy got the name from Japan, where the tradition over there, a lot of people are really fanatical about golf. If you get a hole-in-one on a Japanese golf course, you got to buy a nice dinner or something for everyone that's on the course at the time. So it can rack up some major uh, bucks or yen or whatever. It's not going to be cheap. So people would take out an insurance policy to pay off if they got a hole-in-one. So this is the kind of thing that they went to a a space insuring company that insured satellite launches and said, hey, will you take this bet that before such and such a date, we'll be able to succeed in this technical task or not? And they took the bet. And as it ended up... uh, probably not a bad deal for them to pay off on it because they were positioned as this new entrepreneurial private space stuff moves forward to be sort of uh, a foot in the door or the uh, the initial insurers or be very involved and so forth. So maybe a lost leader for them. But they had a representative on the, uh, on the uh, committee and he absolutely made sure that everything was precise and that, yay, verily, they met all the requirements. So it was a great team we put together. It was great fun. I loved the energy. And I looked for a lot of other projects after that, some, you know, sometimes short, more short-term, others a little bit longer-term, and it's really been fun to be involved in that world. So what do you think is going to be the, like, the unexpected outcome or the best outcome or the something, you know, the benefit to humankind of, of... the commercialization of space. Yeah, I, well, I think, uh, well, move it, let me preface it first with one thing. Moving forward, there's going to be lots, and there already are lots of opportunities for public-private partnerships in that. So it's going to benefit the what you might call the classic space program. One perfect example is with Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, has a contract for space station resupply using the Dragon capsule that they launch on the Falcon 9 rockets. Uh, but moving forward, there'll be many more. They're big up, building much bigger rockets. He just came out with something the other day. He said, yeah, you'll be able to fly on a rocket ship anywhere around the world in 30 minutes. This is our concept. And, and of course, you know, being as uh, high energy and very positive, upbeat, and sales kind of oriented as is, he's like, yeah, I'll do this in no time flat. I'm, you know, engineering test pilot kind of point of view. I said, well, 
okay, maybe it'll take a bit longer than that, but we'll get there eventually <laughs> with these kind of things or some variation on a theme, you know? Right. Um, so there's plenty of place within the industry, the broader aerospace industry for the, uh, these days for the Elon Musk types who come to the table. I mean, in his case, he came to the table with a lot of money to get started on it and really kick things into overdrive. And it really shook up the aerospace establishment. You can bet for certain the, uh, the classic, we call them dinosaurs sometimes <laughs> in aerospace who had always done things kind of the same way and just, you know, plodding along uh, they've kind of had to reformat their business plans and look at, okay, what can we do to adapt and to survive? Because at first there was a little bit of poo-pooing going on. I got a tour of SpaceX very early on. And at that time, many of the NASA people and people affiliated with military space applications, oh, they'll never get this done. Blah, 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 blah. And they've been proven wrong, you know, one step after another. There's failures along the way, but that's part of their process. They learn by the failures. It's all part of, okay, yeah, we move on to the next one. And and the technical accomplishments that SpaceX has done have been magnificent, and uh, they just keep getting better. Well, there's plenty of opportunity for the private se- or f- for the private sector to help the government out with their challenges and problems and where they want to go with their programs. Uh, new NASA administrators coming in. He still needs to be confirmed, uh, but Jim Bridenstine, uh, who I met and knew during another <laughs> new space project back in the day before he was a congressman. Uh, he brings that flavor to bear. He very much uh, understands and appreciates the contributions the private sector can make. It will be interesting to see what his leadership is going forward in NASA, what the Trump administration, when they settle on what space policy is going to be, how they'll try to implement that. I'm um, I'm very intrigued to see where that's going to head. Well, awesome. Rick, I can't thank you enough for joining us for the Heart of Leaders podcast. And uh, I know we're going to have a lot of listeners who... Uh, oh, well, by the way, what is the title of your book? I forgot to ask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my publisher would be mad at me for not having mentioned it already. <laughs> I, I, I meant to do it when you were talking it's about called, it. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's called Liftoff, an Astronaut Commander's Countdown for Purpose-Powered Leadership. So there kind of a long subtitle, but with a really short and punchy title. But uh, kind of hits those elements that I think are so important, you know, so, having that purpose driving your leadership. And the countdown fits in with the uh, with the space background, obviously. It's got plenty of space and flying stories to illustrate all these principles. And it literally in an or- is organized in a countdown fashion. The, the chapters are numbered backwards, so I hope that, that doesn't tumble too many people's gyros. But, you know, just little things like that. I've got a chapter summary for each chapter that is organized the way we do the emergency procedure cue cards in the space shuttle. So just the pithy, what's the most important stuff, just, you know, lay it right out there and just bullet uh, form. I was not going to have, interestingly enough, I was not going to have that as a feature of the book until I had my sister review it. She's a vice president of a bank and, uh, you know, executive vice president type and, you know, been in that business for years and very nuts and bolts say what's the bottom line get me down to the important information and you know she and she suffers no fools and through the years whenever she's determined growing up determined i was a fool she didn't suffer me either but love her to pieces now and very much value her business advice so she read through and she goes this is great but i want like give me a summary that just hits the highlights for everyone and i go Hey, how about something? Uh, and then I came up with the idea of the cue cards and explained that to her. She says, that's perfect. Go with that. So it, it, it's pretty fun. I've gotten some uh, good feedback on it. It's, it's not a fluff book. 
you know, that's one thing about it. It's not a, you know, not to name a particular title, but it's not For a committed heart led leaders. It is. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's medium length, a couple hundred pages or so with lots of stories. It can be read just from the space stories viewpoint. If you want, I gave it to some good friends of ours, a little more senior citizens and, um, you know, they've been retired for years, and she read through it. She says, I, I didn't read any of the business stuff. I just love your stories. And I go, well, you know, it's fine to read for that. That's great. But it really does have, there's a purpose behind this, the stories and the, and the principles and all. So, All right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate your taking the time to share all your wisdom with the Heart of Leaders podcast. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. Talk to you soon. This is Rick Barrera. And I'd like to invite you to join our Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado. There are four sessions per year, one per quarter, and each session is three days long. Our sessions are part classroom and part experiential, meaning we give you an opportunity to practice what you're learning in an active environment. You'll be interacting with fellow explorers in an immersive experience designed to get you moving and apply what you've learned. It's educational, it's engaging, and it's fun. I guarantee you'll find the faculty and your fellow explorers are among the coolest and nicest people you'll ever meet. You'll make lifelong friends and build a world-class network to help you with whatever's next for you. You can learn more at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, Find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.